We are I. All right, so post-election episode with Bridget Shea, we're going to get into a little bit of election things, election things later on, the the kind of feel around the New York area. Um, But like I was just explaining to Bridget, there's something that I want to talk about because, you know, obviously with the uncertainty of what's going on uh, with the election, I know everybody's kind of like sitting on edge, you know, like everybody around the world, I feel like is kind of sitting on edge to see what's going to happen um, with this. And I'm kind of one of those people with a firm belief that something's going to happen no matter what happens in this outcome, because it, the, there's just, there's so much underlying volatility to our world, which gets into uh, a quote that I actually read um, somewhere online a couple of days ago about how, and uh, granted, like I haven't like thoroughly like bit of this or fact check this, but I've seen it in a couple of different areas that the Black Lives Matter protests may or may not start ramping up. There might be more of like a little bit of agenda after um, the election that things might get a little bit more um, like heated again for whatever reason that may be. Obviously, there's a lot of like, you know, who knows what's going to happen with like Antifa. Like there's just a lot of different like avenues for people to latch on to like unrest or to choose a side. Um, And like I was explaining to you before this, that COVID-19 is yet another one of those things for people to be able to pick a side. And I feel like now more than ever, it's not just chatter amongst, you know, like residents, like people, just the general population. There's getting to be a lot of battling back and forth between professionals, like healthcare professionals. And, you know, and even in people of authority, I know that uh, I think we briefly talked about, or, you know, maybe we didn't, maybe this is one of the subjects I wanted to cover last time we didn't have a chance to that the WHO has actually come out and started condemning lockdowns and, you know, like these, um, like these very harsh, um, um, like economic restrictions that the like, countries have been implementing. Um, and that was like a month or so ago. And it's something that Donald Trump kind of piggybacked off of. And I don't know if a lot of people know the WHO took that position because it's not something that's being reported, which I thought was very interesting because when the WHO was promoting lockdowns, it was being very heavily promoted and now they're actually um, coming out against lockdowns because they said that the economic um, downturn or like the economic pressure that's been put on the world far exceeds um, the damage that COVID-19 has the potential to be able to do, you know, obviously because people's finances, you know, the closing of businesses, suicide rates have gone up, depression has gone up, um, overdoses have increased and all these kind of things. So there's, there's just a lot in the world. So this is going to take me a couple of minutes to read through. I apologize, but it just kind of gets the point across. I actually might even stop reading it like halfway through uh, just because I'm sure that you'll kind of get the point and the listeners will get the point uh, behind it. So uh, this letter is actually an open letter from uh, Dr. Stephen Malthouse, medical doctor here in BC. Um, he addressed it uh, right to Dr. Bonnie Henry, who is our provincial health minister and health officer who's creating a lot of our COVID-19 protocols or all of our COVID-19 protocols. And um, so he writes, Dr. Bonnie Henry, I am a physician who has been in family medical practice in BC for more than 40 years 
and a member of the College of Physicians and Surgeons of BC since 1978. I am writing this letter with hope that you'll be able to clarify your basis of your decision that is led our provincial government, health ministry, regional health officers, hospitals, medical staff, WorkSafe BC, businesses, and everyday citizens to follow pandemic policies that do not appear based on high quality scientific research and in fact appear to be doing everyone a great deal of harm. Their early intent of mitigation measures to flatten the curve in quotation marks when we knew very little about SARS-CoV-2 is a mo its mode of transmission and the severity of COVID-19 was reasonable. I believe that most physicians in Canada, myself included, were act whether active or retired, prepared themselves to take part on the front lines for the expected COVID-19 tsunami. Very soon it was apparent that the expected overwhelming of the hospital system was not going to occur and now BC physicians have questions about the appropriateness of your public health policies. The epidemiological evidence clearly shows that a pandemic is over and no second wave will follow. The evidence has been available for at least four to five months and is irrefutable. Yet in spite of the substantial body of research, your office is perpetuating the narrative that a pandemic still exists and a second wave is expected. This false story is being used to justify public health policies that appear to have no health benefits have already caused considerable harm and threatened to create more harm in the future. As you are aware, Sweden took an entirely different approach and as mid-September, their infection rate reached an all-time low and COVID-19 related deaths were at zero. 22 of 31 European countries, most of which enacted strict lockdowns, had higher infection rates. Sweden has also largely escaped the financial ruin and catastrophic mental health problems experienced in other countries, including Canada and the United States. Dr. Lawrence Rosenberg, Montreal's medical health officer, has stated this COVID virus is much like the seasonal flu in quotation marks. A group of over 400 Belgian doctors had stated that COVID is not a killer virus, but a treatable condition. And 18 doctors wrote um, to the Ontario Health Premier, Doug Ford, stating that your policies risk significantly harming our children with lifelong consequences. The Ontario policies are very similar to those in British Columbia. In 2011, a review of the literature by the British Columbia Center for Disease Control that sought to evaluate the effectiveness of social distancing measures such as school closures, travel restrictions, and limitations on mass gatherings as means to address an influenza pandemic concluded that such drastic restrictions are not economically feasible and are not predicted to delay viral or are predicted to delay viral spread, but not impact overall or mortality. Specifically, there appears to be no scientific or medical evidence for self-isolation of asymptomatic people, social distancing, face masks, arbitrary closure of businesses, closures of schools, daycares, park amenities, and playgrounds, the discontinuance of access to education, medical, dental, chiropractic, naturopathic, hearing, dietary, therapeutic, and other support for the physically and mentally disabled, the closing and or restrictions on religious places of worship. According to the CDC Pandemic Severity Index, none of these measures have been warranted. The Great Barrington Declaration, signed by more than 30,000 health scientists and medical doctors from around the world, adds support for this statement. And it continues on, like it just keeps going and going, like it just, and 
more examples and there's in each one of the times he takes and actually inserts an asterisk and then has a reference point down at the end to like materials um to be able to conclude to like my point behind wanting to read that like obviously like you can see how loaded it is and what i'm saying is that like there's just there's so much in our world right now where there's so much contention such hard sides and like it's just this overall unease and now you're stacking this election on top of it because like obviously this one doctor that's not just his opinion pretty much everywhere that i go now there's a huge push towards like well not a push there's this huge gathering towards how this doctor feels um and a big narrative around here is because they're saying that bc cases are spiking and this is the second wave but we've also never tested more people daily. So, but the percentages of people versus the, who are getting tested versus the overall like cases. Um, and most of these cases don't even result in um, like hospitalization. They're just the uh, like um, self-isolation for 10 days and stuff that um, like, that's kind of more like this doctor's point is that he goes on in the article to say at the end that a case is only supposed to be supported by people who have been hospitalized or put in the ICU and not people who are walking around holding their cell phone, drinking a Starbucks coffee, standing in a COVID-19 line, um, getting tested, find out that they have um, COVID-19 and then are sent home for 10 days and they can continue on their life from there. Um, so I know there's a lot there. Like what's your, what's your kind of thoughts and opinions on about the, 40 different bombs that I just kind of dropped in the last 10 minutes. Um, you know, it's good that people are questioning what's happening. And, you know, yeah, you make a good case for, because there is more testing, it looks like the cases are spiking but um, I can really, I, my best way to, to come at this is from the perspective of being a New Yorker mm-hmm. because I'm really well versed in what's happening in my area. And the infection rate here with pretty ample testing in this spring was close to, not in my immediate area, but like down by the city was close to about 20%. Mm. Now, on average, it's a little over 1%. And what they're trying to do here is to, ident- to test more so that they can identify clusters. So here in New York, they're testing more. They might do, you know, 80,000 tests in a day, and there might only be a few hundred actual cases. And so, you know, the, by testing more and figuring out where the infection clusters are, then there can be more isolated, more calculated shutdowns for a limited amount of time in a specific, you know, like in the area, in the range of like a few blocks, you know, so in that way they're trying to contain things so we had to we had a spike here a few weeks ago down uh in queens and the percentage got up to i think like three and a half percent or something like that and so they did that they had they isolated where it was 
and they did a mini shutdown of just that region and now the infection rates dropping mm -hmm. so you know this is it's really hard because a lot of people ha don't actually know someone who's even had it and on the flip side of that i think a lot of people do know somebody who's had it just they didn't even know they had it mm -hmm. um but so that makes it hard for people to not recognize that it is still an issue and from the the perspective of a clinician you know i the 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 clients that i'm i treat that have had it that now suffer with long covid they would have a nice argument for that doctor about you know what it just brings up so many so many questions i mean even if you just got long covid for six or eight months or however long we don't know how long it's going to last um and everybody's different so even if you just got that it's like we're pretty good at putting people with chronic illness on the back burner you know lyme and its co-infections not real um we don't understand it so let's just shove it over there um autoimmune diseases chronic pain ah, eh, we'll do what we can and then you're on your own and it's like they don't really want to take that seriously so this is no different so even though we may be managing how to treat it better when there is an acute infection the long-term ramifications of having that infection are not respected and so I mean, it just, it's a mess. <laughs> it's a hot mess. Um, they don't know what role dosaging plays in the severity of an infection. So, you know, that's a thing. How often you're exposed to it, how much of it you get, how it gets in your body, where it lands, like none of that is known. Um, I personally am a proponent of of finding like a middle path because yes there are these um there are these ramifications economically that we're we've all had touch our lives and some people a lot more than others and so i mean i think that's part of what the who is is doing by scaling back on shutdowns because they're probably weighing the effects of poverty that's been inflicted as a result of this disease on the health of entire populations and how those health crises measure up to if we just let COVID run rampant, right? So they're, they're the World Health Organization. So they're not just concerned with epidemics, they're also concerned with malaria and you know starvation and like you said suicide like anything having to do with health um so it's like there's really no good answer you know then you'll get uh, somebody who's in the hospital treating covid patients on a regular basis and they're on the other end of the spectrum they're gonna say yeah do the shutdown yeah wear the masks um so it really has a lot to do with your with your um, 
with your life experience, I think, what, what kind of side of the fence you fall on with this. And, you know, trying to find the lesser of evils is really, I think, the best that we can do at this point. Yeah, you know, and I look at this like I had, um, when I, I think it was even before I was born or when I was very little, um, like one of my cousins, he committed suicide. And I had a friend a few years ago, um, she was having mental health issues and she committed suicide as well. And the reason why that I bring this up is because now our suicide rate in BC is higher than what our mortality rate is from COVID-19. And like we're only talking about like the increase of suicides um, given this certain time period, you know, in relationship to any other year. So like arguably you can say that's probably COVID-19 related, whatever the reason may be. Um, Sure. That I would rather help somebody for six or eight or 12 months that has um, COVID lung than not be, see that person anymore at all. Just knowing what it's like to be able to lose people that are close. Never mind losing people, like in general, but I just mean specifically something like is like tragic as COVID 19, especially if that they never got it, but they were, you know, like lost their job. They were teetering on the brink of depression and anxiety before. Like, like this is where it's like, a lot of these symptoms, and th these are the hard parts about it is because like you said, like, like, honestly, I think we can all sit down as adults and say, there's got to be some middle ground that works here. But like, there's a lot of these spinoffs, like you were saying in this, what the World Health Organization is obviously looking at is that they're far worse. Like, there's a lot of these impacts that are like, if you look at like, how many now more people are just living in tents and living out of their cars, and like you said, like the poverty, and then what happens with poverty, other diseases, you know, go up. You know, and I think it's in San Francisco where they have found some kind of like medieval diseases floating around, you know, in like the homeless um, encampments there, you know, where it's like, what's going to happen? And my, my global point more behind like it, diving into like the COVID-19 thing, like just using it as an example that obviously everybody can relate to. Like, I think the two examples that no matter who you are, if you're not a all lives matter, black lives matter, Antifa, like any one of these sides, I'm, I'm pretty sure people can understand COVID-19 and the US election. Like these are both things that I think everybody can kind of relate to. And how much more this population can handle with having heavily divided sides. Because like I was saying, like now you have like medical health professionals like attacking each other. You have countries condemning each other. You have world organizations coming at each other. You have Republicans and Democrats coming or going at each other. We got completely snowballed by our political system out here. Like most people, like there was a surprise provincial election out here and the NDP ran, like they just took it in a landslide. Most people didn't even know the, <laughs> the election was happening. It was just, it was basically, we're gonna have this surprise election in a week. And then all of a sudden it came and gone. And it's just like, well, there's another four years that he's in term. Like there's just a lot of these sneaky things going on now where like this, this gameplay is happening. But like, I think because there's this stacking on, like there's this Lego Jenga, you know, kind of emotional unrest that, you know, even like really strong people, like I see are starting to kind of break at the seams a little bit. And like, that's what worries me is like when you have, now really strong people who can easily like have fulfill a leadership role into like taking charge of whatever that may look like because it's different and we all know when you know like we come home and we complain about things to our friends and family 
which is what most people do. Like, oh, I hate my job, hate traffic, all this kind of stuff. That's just kind of like something that's been accepted. But the new age of that is like protesting on the streets. And like every couple months, it seemed like there's a new reason why people should be protesting or marching. And they only can stay viable for so long before they eventually turn hostile or deadly or violent. And when's the point where like all of that just kind of amalgamates together and it's no longer two or three or four or five different sides fighting for different reasons, but they all kind of morph into this one blend of just civil unrest. And then you get into a situation where there might be like a civil war of some kind, you know, like in the United States and, you know, maybe even Canada is a, a trickle down effect from it or you know, something along those lines. It just, there's a lot of underlying issues you know, it's like a bad marriage right now where there's not enough stuff was talked about for too long. And now like the, the divorce is about to happen. Mm, it certainly is. Yeah. Well, in terms of COVID, I think, um, I think it's wise to try and prevent what happened in Italy. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was not okay. Yeah. People were being turned away at the hospital mm -hmm. because doctors had to decide who was going to be given a chance to live yeah and these are the things right and like this is to me like why it's like we are a product of too much information too because i know a lot of people love to use sweden as this example of like well they didn't do anything and then then also like equally i feel like there's a, like a lot of people like to use italy as an example of like these two polar opposites but they don't i know they don't reflect b neither one of them reflect bc and probably neither right. one of them reflect really where you are either in New York like we have all of these different it's like you know like there's not a, an incredibly aging population of smokers in BC like what there is in Italy so like they may be right. turning away people at those hospitals but like we would most likely never have that same situation here because right. we're progressive social everyone has to have a different plan it can't be yeah. a thing for everyone and you know, I think, I think if they had a better middle of the road and that, and if they did regionally like strategize and, you know, look at the population and, and take those things into account, then there would be a lot more freedom of movement even. I mean, more people would be traveling, more people would be doing things that they enjoy to do um, in those areas where, you know, there, there is more ability to to do things like for example i you know this is this is a political thing now but my personal sense is that in most places in in this country in the united states if most people wore masks most of the time no it's not going to save you from catching anything but what it will do is to help limit the amount of viral particles in the air and that may, that may prevent people from catching it. And it may prevent, like I, I was talking about this dosage thing. Maybe it will prevent the high enough dosage to send somebody to, you know, the oxygen tank or the ventilator, you know? So, it, and then if people did that en masse, then the, then the rates would be lower. And then people might be more apt to get on a plane and go somewhere. You know, it would help to stimulate the economy, but, but like you're mentioning, the divisiveness is so black or white that 
you know, you're either wearing a mask all the time or you're somebody who just is anti doing it. And that's, those are the areas where the infection rates are higher here right now. Like the watching what's happening in this country is like, it's, it's fascinating. You're seeing the cause and effect, but it's not like registering. Mm -hmm. And like here in New York state, like where the infection rate is pretty low and I'm not doing this, but a lot of people are going out to restaurants and stuff. You know, people are doing things. They're going shopping. They're meeting at the coffee shop. They're going for a walk in town. And our infection rate is still only around 1%. But the majority of the, of the time, those, those people are walking into an atmosphere, for example, in a shop or in a grocery store where everyone's wearing masks and that's enforced. And you've always got the person with their nose sticking out or whatever. But, you know, that's not like, the majority. And so that's my two cents on that whole thing. I, I know you probably want to move on to other, onto other topics. I just feel like there needs to be more balance. There needs to be, you know, it doesn't need to be white or black. Mm -hmm. There can, you know, we can be in sort of a gray area and adapt based upon our region and our population. Like you're saying, like that's, it has to be taken into account that way because just like shutting the whole country down is not gonna work for anyone financially. I mean, the government, I don't know how much you guys got in stimulus checks, but we got one $1,200 stimulus checks. That's, that's not even a month's rent for most people. Yeah, see, and like in these again, like are, are a couple of things, you know, like we were saying, so um, like all, they pretty much nationalized uh, wages out here where the government does this 75% of wages for businesses. Uh, the problem is like there's holes in that like all the businesses that don't have a year's provable income already, like all new businesses didn't qualify because they don't have a year's uh, um, income to be able to show. So those businesses, you know, that, that they're in their struggle year already anyway, and yeah. now they're just struggling that much harder. Um, two, we also like if you qualified um, for it, which most people did, and they didn't even at the beginning. Uh, make anybody qualify just simply if you if you put the application in it automatically got approved and they said we'll figure out whether you deserve this money later or not And if you don't you have to pay it back but everybody's got two thousand dollars a month so like the actual like financial now there's the two sides of it because i actually are on the side of the fence where i don't want to have that kind of government interference i, I like i'm not that pro big government where there's this like safety blanket that they should be nationalizing wages and you know giving out these two thousand dollar a month checks like they're is they're, that just because of COVID or is that something they were doing anyway just because of covid because oh. so maybe because you know it's basically part of their emergency response plan because the the government is essentially the one that told you you couldn't go to work so then they're basically like well if we're telling you that we need to be able to do something um which is which is nice in some regards but i being a double-edged sword, I would always err on the side that it'll cut you deeper than it'll defend you. Um, because with that, when you allow governments to have that kind of control, I'm not pro-government to that extent. Like big governments, no, I'm, I'm more government should be small. People are the people. Um, but two, you mentioned an interesting thing with the mass. And I've had this conversation with, with quite a few people. And maybe just one is that, so when it comes to wearing the masks, um, there's a lot of countries and especially say like Japan and you know, like a lot of Asian countries where, you know, a lot of people wore masks already anyway. So when they said it was mandatory and because people didn't want to be a social pariah, 
it immediately, <laughs> immediately everybody started wearing masks and it was okay. I, I really truly feel, and this kind of what I want your opinion on is, we teach people to be an individual in North America. Yeah. And then we're telling you, you have to wear a mask. And then people are just all like, you're not going to tell me when to wear a mask. I will choose if I want to wear a mask or not. But we also want you to feel like a social pariah for not wearing a mask to be able to get you to wear a mask. But I still want you to be this individual, just not when I tell you it's not okay. Do you see like the, it, it, we've spent years and decades and coaching our children and teaching them and creating schools of thought around it and like all of these different, you know, like ways of like be independent, be an individual, you know, like don't conform. And, you know, like that's, you know, like what got us into some, you know, precarious positions in the past. And, you know, like where's the communist socialist scale on that? And, but like, so like when people resisted, like, and again, like how we use like Sweden and Italy is like these, you know, kind of like bases. And also we use J places like Japan for the mask. It's like, well, they also haven't been telling people to be like these stark individuals, like stand up for yourself, be the different, dye your hair pink and get face tattoos and, you know, drive a Corvette backwards down the street because it feels right. You know, like we promote that here. And then when it's not convenient for people to act like that, then we want to condemn them for not doing it, which is it's a really interesting lay of the land because again, like all of these things aren't light switches about our personalities where we can just turn on and off. Um, yeah. You know, but it's like, I feel like, again, like these are all more examples of how us being so extreme on one side or the other doesn't allow for like a healthy middle ground. And we're really seeing so many examples of that now if you're willing to kind of like pick them out. Um, because I was saying that I, I believe that also is a trickle down effect to people having a singular occupation. If anybody feels right now, like the pressure of like, that I can't meet ends meet because I have this job. I know more people now who are looking at like, cause there was a pretty big uh, movement before all this that what's your side hustle? Like everybody had this side hustle business, you know, like this extra income. Well, now I know, almost everybody has this extra little thing or these two or three little things they're doing because they're trying to generate more, more income and realizing that maybe having a singular job that I go to every day may not be the best because I'm vulnerable like that. You know, like, right. and, and again, like, it's just like that huge where we follow this very specific rigid system. And if one thing out of that system really goes awry, we kind of end up where we're at right now because nobody ever thought about, well, it's never been like whether I have a job or don't have a job. What if I have a job, but I can't get there? Yeah. You know, we've all kind of been in that. I woke up at a flat tire. I ran out of gas, you know, like anything along those lines in the temporary angst you felt at that moment, not being able to get there that day. Now multiply that by days and weeks and months and maybe years, you know, of like that. So it's like that vulnerability of like those hard, rigid lines that we, we create for each other. I do have a whole point. The reason that comes back into the conversations that you and I talked about this, um, we like you said, switching kind of topics. Um, I just wanted to kind of highlight all of these things about how like when we're being very rigid and creating something singular, how it seems like we have a lot of examples of that right now that it's not necessarily good. Now, my transfer out of all those examples into the body is that 
we always try to find homeostasis in the body. And I feel like that's a big part of like Eastern medicine where we feel like that we kind of coach down like this road of bringing the body back to the homeostasis where like we kind of create like these parameters to be able to live in. Um, so if we are, if we are coaching the mind and the body down this, like this very singular kind of path of like homeostasis, are we more susceptible um, to feeling like extreme angst when things come from the outside into that environment? So say, for example, like if you're really focused on like your meditation and, you know, just really feeling emotional well-being and balanced, do we deal with things better than all of a sudden when, if that system is taken away from us or we don't have an ability to be able to do that anymore um, because we've over leveraged a singular system or like it, would it be better to kind of find multiple different avenues to be able to do this, which may not necessarily lead to our body being in harmony all the time. Do you, am, am I doing a really bad job of explaining that or do you kind of see where I'm going with that? I see where you're going with that, I think. Yeah. Um, so obviously if you're secluded and you're focusing on meditating and something comes into your bubble and pops it, it's going to be a difficult adjustment. Mm -hmm. um, which is why they have meditation centers and like Panchakarma centers. So you can go and you can be in that space and do that thing. And then you increase your stress tolerance as a result, ideally. And then when you go out into the world again, yes, you may be more open and be more, you know, sensory and pick up on more things, but ideally you should have the resilience to be able to create boundaries to what you're getting affected by. Mm -hmm. That's my take on it. Yeah. And I look at it too. So like the, <laughs> the meditation was like an example of that, like what, what I was thinking, like when I was, thinking about this conversation before we had is like, um, like the micro gut biome, like obviously it's something we've been talking a lot about lately, you and I, especially because your books come out and it's just a huge topic of conversation now is that when, when I eat, when I feel my best, whether or not that would be good for my micro gut biome or not. Um, and I feel like just what we know about like the adaptation of a micro gut biome, I feel that um, there's, it has to be something that's going well if, everything about me feels in balance and I feel great. Now, if then all of a sudden, and I wouldn't do this, but there'd be a, a transfer to it. But if I ate a donut one day and I felt terrible, you know, in this, and I, people challenge me with this all the time, not just with me, but in general, is it better to have more variety of junk, like coming into your body so that you, if you do want to have that treat one time, that it doesn't affect you as much. I don't, I look at it as that that's the more understanding of why you shouldn't be eating that stuff. And hopefully the next time you do it is a longer gap in between the two. Um, but again, like that would be like that allowing more in to make that one event a little bit easier to be able to deal with um, because you know, it's inevitably going to happen, you know, just because like us as like human beings, because like all these systems that I see where we've really tried to create like this, this uniformity, like this, like singular path 
there'd be something that'll be big enough that'll come by one day and like how does that rock you and you know so say if you have like this really good micro gut biome and you eat this donut one day like like how long like how much impact would that have like if your micro gut biome was like absolutely perfect and all of a sudden you eat this donut and your body's in complete disarray you've got a stomach ache you know like you're running to the bathroom and then you go right back to like eating like, you know, perfect to what you were eating before. So you get this great microbiome back. Like what's the duration of time in that? Like is, is, do we know, do we have any idea how long it takes to recover from like these little intermittent events that are kind of catastrophic to our, our system? Okay. So let me go back to the meditation thing first. Yeah. Okay. So the meditation thing, when one is in a deep meditative retreat, it's not like they're like floating in the air with rainbows and unicorns and you know everything is bliss and then all of a sudden somebody comes and rains on their parade and what it's like is a very fierce internal struggle at times and other times it's it, you get those glimpses of that bliss it reminds you why you're doing it but really what's happening is you're facing your own demons when you do a meditation retreat. And it's some people decide that that's not for them. And they go into the retreat thinking one thing and then the stuff starts coming out that needs to get processed. And the person's like, all right, I'm not going to do that. And they leave the retreat. And so in facing your own obstacles and demons, when then if you are able to process those and move through it and get to know those inside and out within yourself then when you're in, in encountering that in the outside world it's like you're dealing you have a totally different tool set that you're dealing with so it that's in that sense it creates more resiliency so i just wanted to say that yeah. um and likewise with the gut microbiome so I don't know of a study where they've done exactly what you just stated. So I need to just put that out on the table that I don't know of a study where they've had somebody with a quote unquote microbiome ideal diet and lifestyle that's eaten a donut. And then they've taken the, the stool sample before and after, and then weeks later to see how long it goes before it gets back to where it was. But everything we eat, changes the microbiome complexity in that meal for that meal how long it lasts it depends and so this goes into resiliency again so whether it's stress tolerance we're talking about or whether it's microbiome health there's a resiliency that happens with our life experience so with our life experience on the mat or with our life experience in terms of the diversity in our gut. So this is part of the reason why a healthy gut microbiome is defined as a diverse microbiome right now. And there is argument against that, but right now that's the accepted definition. A healthy microbiome is a diverse microbiome. And one of the reasons is because they found that diversity in the beneficial microbes in the gut is what creates res resiliency to the donut 
resiliency to a pathogen invading, resiliency to a course of antibiotics, so that the body can maybe be affected by it short term and then bounce back. And that bounce back might look a lot like what the body was beforehand or the microbiome was beforehand, but it may not be exactly the same. It may be slightly tweaked forever, but that's okay because that's how it changes and evolves over time. Um, so those two things go together. That resiliency that we generate comes from the diversity in our gut or the diversity in our experiences so that when we're faced with unforeseen challenges, we have better adaptability. Yeah, and it is one of those. So when you're looking at like diversity, and I know that unless if you get tested for like a lot of people, you know, aren't going to know and it really depends on like the test too and like what they're going to look for. But do we even have like any idea of like what, um, a number would be like like what does diversity mean like i know it just means a number but is there like a, a number of different like bacteria that we're we're aiming for or like is there like any known science the diversity in the strains and like we can't know that because we know we have a microbiome and we know we have a mycobiome which is so the microbiome is all the bacteria and the microbiome is all the funguses, fungi and yeasts. And the virome is all the viruses. But we don't have the technology currently to measure all the viruses. We just discovered a different strain of lactobacillus, mm -hmm. which is a bacteria. Yeah. So the, the information and the science on the gut microbiome is in its infancy right now. Um, we, we know a lot but we don't know enough to be able to say with any certainty X, Y, or Z. What, they, what the general consensus tends to be at this point with researchers is that a high fiber diet is ideal and that it's ideal for diversifying and strengthening the beneficial microbe communities in the gut and a varied diet is ideal as well and so when they talk about like with variation because of like variation is a really new concept in diet and like we've talked about this before too is that um if we're supposed to be seasonally eating and then arguably like you know based on like our um or like our family history like our genetics um like where we are from geographically in the world, like we also might have uh, like a micro gut biome that might be able to tolerate different, you know, things based on like where our heritage is, you know, like our, our family roots. Um, now, when we think about variety, are, do we take things into like that? And can, is it variety of things? Like if we wanted to think of a more like paleolithic, um, like heritage diet that's seasonally, is that what we're thinking when we think of variety or are we just thinking anything that's healthy or what we deem to be healthy? Variety in fiber sources. Okay. And there's fiber in meat. Yeah. And like, yeah. And like nuts and seeds and like, cause there's fiber like, most things. Yeah. Is there any one fiber that's like more beneficial than the other? Like we're looking at like fiber from 
like fruits and vegetables or like nuts and seeds or meat or like is there is there like an order of priority or uh, or is it simply because there's more fruits and vegetables so the the quantity um of fruits and vegetables that we could eat like the difference is higher than the amount of meat sources we could get um does that make it more beneficial like is there a scale that we know of or that anybody's not, not, not that i've seen in, in my in my readings but um the leaning is toward having a greater quantity of uh, plant-based foods in the diet. So by plant-based, it's fruits, vegetables, spices, herbs, grains. Okay. And I know too, like this is a question a lot of people ask me and I've had actually quite a few people want me to ask you this to go into it because it's kind of uh, generally known and talked about that like fermentable fibers, like fermented products are really good to consume to be able for your microbiome. Um, is that true? Is that false? What's your opinion on it? What are some of like the best one, best fermented products to eat and why? So fermented foods have been part of humanity's diet for a very long time. And when something is fermented, it means that the microbes in it have been allowed to prosper. And so by consuming that food, we are consuming those microbes and thereby deriving the benefit of their passage through our system. So whether they colonize or not is, is one thing. We know that whether they're alive or not, they still, some of them have constituents in them that, that help to balance the immune system. So even if you ingest something and it dies in your stomach because of the acid, or in the small intestine because of the enzymes. By the time it gets to the large intestine, the body is able to still do something with it. Um, if it survives, then whatever it does normally, it can do and we get that benefit from it. So the thing with fermented stuff is that it tends to be really sour. And so we want to have things that are sour in the diet because we want all of the tastes in every meal if possible. However, the quantity of sour taste that an individual has is, or, or wants to have is going to vary based upon you know, their medical condition, their body's condition. Um, some people, we don't want to give them a lot of sour foods. You know, we might not want to give somebody a lot of sour food at a certain time of the year. So um, I am a proponent of fermented foods for sure, but I'm not a proponent of overeating fermented foods. And by overeating, I mean, I wouldn't sit down and drink a 20 ounce bottle of kombucha. I wouldn't sit down and have three cups of yogurt, um, things like that. Like the proportion, the, the quantity of it, I think needs to be adjusted in many people's diets. Cause we hear fermented foods are good for us. And then that's what we go. We, we go buy, you know, kimchi or whatever. And we're eating like, you know, a huge like steak size portion or chicken breast size portion of kimchi or something like that. I mean, I'm sure not everybody's doing that with kimchi, but it's just an, an example. Or what we do with yogurt or, or with, with kombucha. So I think that's just what we do in general, though. Like, I think the point that you're making is just like when people see or hear something 
we want to not just do a little bit of it. It's like, I'm going to do it all and then more and then burn myself out from doing it, hate it, stop it. Um, because I just don't want to do it. Like that's just, that's just human beings. That's kind of like how we've got to. So like you, you make a point where it's not necessarily kimchi, but everybody has an example of like where that they've been like, Oh, chia seeds are the new thing. Okay. Now it's hemp hearts. Okay. That's pomegranates. Okay. Now it's, almonds okay now yeah, there's just and then they just we have these hyper concentrations for these very like small periods of time instead of just looking at it like you can find benefit in anything if it doesn't cake with glyphosate and it's not you know like boxed and wrapped and processed and shrink wrapped and preservatives and like like that's the one we always forget and i always find it funny when foods get labeled as superfoods because it's really just at the end of the day like a whole all natural food product and they're all going to have benefit to them. It's just whatever's the best marketing tool, right? So, but sorry to cut you off. Keep going with because I know this is something people really want to know about. Where it's like this. that was all I had to say about it, really. Yeah. And like so, like and again, I and I know there is no skills. I know like all this is is so new, but like, w is it better to prioritize like a, a fermented product in your diet, um, you know, over like a fiber product, or is it just equally as important for both is it better to uh, to have something that fermented more in the morning time or afternoon or evening um should it be like before your meal or after your meal to help with digestion like is there any like beneficial times um when we should be focusing on eating like a fermented product um usually they're eaten with meals traditionally and so i would go with that for the most part i'd say you know, if, if you have sluggish digestion, having it either before or after your meal would be the best bet. But usually they're eaten with meals. Um, probably more toward the end, I'd say, but I, it depends on what it is. Um, and it's isn't just, it, it just goes in with the food so that your body just gets a little dose of it, you know, with the rest of your food. And I wouldn't pri prioritize it over grains or, or fiber uh, any, any more than I prioritize those over it. I mean, it's, these are all things that are useful to us in balance. And isn't it true um, that almost every ancient culture had a fermented product, like a kind of like a, a singular fermented product that they all consumed Again, like how we know that a lot of these ancient cultures figured things out like a long time ago, obviously knew that a fermented product in your diet must have been good if all of these ancient cultures that weren't really connected with each other at the beginning or their origins, but yet they all had to have a fermented product. Have you ever run across any research like that when you were writing the book? About them all having fermented products? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of information about the fact that that's part of many different cultures yeah do we do like were they eating it for the same reason why we're eating it now or do these ancient cultures have fermented products for different reasons hmm. good question i would imagine that they recognized that there was some digestibility factor to them mm -hmm. they were pretty clued in to what was going on with the body mm -hmm. And I guess it's probably easier again, back to like what we talked about, like at the beginning of this conversation, when there's not all this other stuff for us to, um, to be focused on, 
that's really just attention seeking and grabbing for a short period of time. We miss so much. And it's like your point with the yoga and the meditation too. I was always one of those people that continually said to everybody, I can't sit still. I don't like to be with my own thoughts. You're like I'd always need to be reading something or listening to music or listening to a podcast. Uh, but I actually really just enjoy now understanding what's going on in my mind because I've now understood that there's layers to it. Like there's this, if I had just have like that quiet time, like there's this layer of chatter that means nothing. It's kind of just stuff floating around in there. And then I have this different layer once all that chatter is gone. That's like kind of means a little bit of something to me, but I could take it or leave it. Once that's gone, then I get to like, oh, this is what's on my mind. And I can always get to that place, but I got to like sift through these first couple layers of this really arbitrary stuff that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But I contribute mm -hmm. that stuff to like all these things that happen in a day that don't really matter. But then we all sit down in conversations like this saying like, how did these people 2,000, 5,000, 10,000 years ago figure all these things out? And it's like, but yeah, when you ate something or something was like fermented or, you know, like we were just so much more in tune with what we felt because there was so much less to understand or digest or focus on or, or pollute our mind with. We we're just so much more like in tune with ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Um, maybe that's a, a great place. I'm so sorry to be able to like cut this short and start it today. <laughs> Uh, but all those parenting responsibilities oh, yeah. <laughs> with like these little these little humans got my uh, got my attention today and stuff. Mm -hmm. And it was uh, the thing this morning was something that I wasn't anticipating. And then um, now since I don't know whether you guys' schools are like we get out a half an hour early uh, from school because they do this staggered um, um, dismissal. So there's not as many parents running into each other and children running into each other that uh, started at the end of school. Do you guys right. do anything like that there? No, we're, the school that Calliope's at, we pick her, everybody gets picked up one at a time. Oh. So you have walkie-talkies, and you have a sign with your kid's name on it, and you pull up to the door, and then wow. the lady at the door radios into the school, and they send the kid out, you put them in the car, you drive away, next, 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 all the way down the line. So first day of school probably <laughs> took about two hours for everybody. <laughs> They've got everything down like, a, like clockwork now. Wow, that's, I could, yeah, like, our kids, all they did is, uh, here is from, I think it's A, A to M, uh -huh. everybody with the last name A to M, you show up, like, now, like, there's the pickup at, or after school at um, 2.15, and then uh -huh. all the other kids from, you know, like, N to Z, like, everybody just comes um, at 2.40, so, like, it's, like, these, say everybody, like, yeah, we're still, huge groups of uh of people which i the part that i find interesting about this is our cohorts in school they can associate with the same 60 kids in school uh -huh. um, but they're not supposed to be around so it's like usually about two or three classrooms of kids they can be on the playground with or they can associate they can do like assemblies or school related things yeah. um, but before and after school all those groups of 60 kids are all playing with each other and hanging out and like doing their, and then all those kids go play sports and stuff like soccer, baseball, Hoggins, like it's just, it's such a, ridiculous. Yeah. It's really interesting. So, um, but I really appreciate your time always. And I know the problem with me most times, I just, there's so much going on in my mind 
and I always have like so many questions. I'm sorry for pulling you in so many different directions every time we have these conversations, but I really appreciate your insight on all of them. Oh, thank you. Well, I appreciate you having me and um, maybe next time we'll talk about the election. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. We'll have a result by then, I think. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. If not, there's going to be some real civil unrest. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Either way, there might be. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Good to see you. Good to see you.